0: So let me pray and then we'll get into the, the scriptures this morning. Father, I thank you, O oh God, that you are the one who changes times and seasons, removes kings, and sets up kings. How you give wisdom to the wise and you give knowledge to those who have understanding. Thank you that you reveal deep and hidden things, God, to us. And so God, I pray that you would find us as those who who come before you humble. And um, just submitting to your word, not to our own understanding. Thank you that you're the one that reveals truth to us. I pray that you would make us to know wisdom, that you would open our eyes, that we would behold wonderful things from your word. And so, Father, even now, I especially pray, God, that you would be our teacher, that you would show us and, and guide us on what it is that your word teaches and what it says. I pray that we might not resist, but that we might be those to... Take it, embrace it, and see actually these truths here in Romans are glorious. God, they are so life-transforming and life-enabling and comforting. Uh, God, they are, are, are the words that can give great joy to our souls. So I pray that you would open our eyes now, that you would give joy to our souls. We have understanding of what your word says. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the doctrine of Scripture is uh, one of the most precious doctrines in all the Bible. Just what the Bible says about itself. The Bible says that God's word is inspired by God. says that God's word is perfect, that it endures forever, that um, forever, O Lord, your word is established in heaven. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It is profitable to teach us, equip us, train us for all ways of righteousness. Of the scriptures, Jesus said, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. He said that scriptures cannot be broken. And yet, despite what the scripture says in every day and in every age, there are challenges to the truthfulness of scripture. From from the day in the garden when Satan approached Eve and questioned God's word, did God really say this? To today and the, the multitude of websites that are out there trying to disprove the Bible and trying to say the Bible is not trustworthy, that Scripture can be broken, that Scripture is broken. And, and there are times where these challenges are big and strong, and there are times when these challenges kind of rise, just rise to a, a dull roar, but they're always there because Satan knows and unbelievers know that if you destroy the Bible, you dethrone the Bible, you destroy and dethrone Christianity. In Paul's day, it's interesting that there are those who questioned the truthfulness of the Bible. And there are those who are trying to defend the word of God. And surprisingly, it's interesting, in Paul's day, Paul was the one accused of questioning the Bible. Paul's the one who's, who was accused of being saying, you're saying the Bible's not true. Like, like for instance, right? There, there was one time when he arrived in Jerusalem for Pentecost, Acts 21. And some Jews saw Paul... In the temple. And they hated him. And they rose up. And here's what they said. Acts 21, 28. Saying, men of Israel, help. This Paul is the one who's teaching everywhere. Against this people. And the law. And this place. Referring to the temple. Moreover, he's even brought Greeks into the temple. has defiled this holy place. that last part was not true. He didn't bring Greeks into the temple. He didn't defile that. Uh, And then the first part. Speaking against the people. And the law. And the temple. Was just not true. Uh, Paul never taught against the Jewish people. He, he never taught against the law. He taught Jesus as the fulfillment of the law. And yet the accusation came against him. That he's teaching against the law. Right? In other words, what he is saying is contrary to the truth of Scripture. And one of the things that really brought that to light is when Paul taught about the, the free sovereignty of God and the gift of grace and salvation. And people understood that to say that he was abolishing the law. And he's actually saying that Jesus is the one who fulfilled the law. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 4, we'll see that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. He's not teaching against the law. He's really teaching that Christ is the end of the law. And so we come to our text today. We've been teaching verse by verse through Romans. And we've come this morning to Romans chapter 9. And uh, verse 6, the title of my message this morning is that the word of God has not failed. This is what Paul argues. He's saying, listen, amidst all the things we say, God's word has not failed. It stands true. Let's read our text Romans 9 6 through 13. Paul writes this It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all are descended from Israel who belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because there is offspring. But through Isaac, your offspring will be named. This means it's not the children of the flesh or the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also Rebecca, when she had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. I trust you can see the, the title of my message, right, comes straight from verse 6, which Paul said, it's not as though the word of God has failed. Now this is the first of several objections that Paul answers through uh, these chapters in chapter 9. As, uh, is that, that, that he teaches something and then people in their minds raise an objection. And they say, well, what, are you, what you just taught, what, well, what about this? And then Paul explains it and then raises another question. They "Say, what about this? And then Paul answers it and raises another question. They say, what about this? Is what, what Paul says. And, and the key to understanding Romans 9 is to understand precisely why these objections come along the way. Because if you know the objection, you know you're tracking right with what Paul says. But, but if you read Paul and you don't come up with that objection, you've not understood Paul. Because Paul is saying these things will naturally lead your mind to question these things. And no more evident will it be than next time. Beginning at verse 14. The objection is raised about God's justice. Look what it says in verse, chapter 9, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And Paul says, no means. In other words, what he's saying in verses 6 through 13 will kind of raise the objection to say, what about the justice of God? Is that really fair? Is God just? And if you read it in such a way that it doesn't lead you to think about God's justice, then you've not understood what Paul is saying. You understand what I'm saying? Like, Like, why would he bring up this issue about the injustice of God if he's not talking about injustice, but it seems like he's talking about Injustice, but Paul, of course, says that God is just. He is just in, in every way. He's not unjust. He says, by no means, he is not unjust. And and next time we'll look at how he explains that. You might be surprised how he explains it. So come back. N- next week, Will Weber is going to preach, but the week after that, we'll we'll look at that. Um, but our in our text this morning, the objection comes: This it's not as though the word of God has failed. Now some right thought that God's word maybe had failed with what Paul was teaching. And the key to understanding, verses 6 and following, is to understand that uh, the, the context of what it is that raises that objection. And, and the whole issue has to do with Israel. Israel was in a state of unbelief. Now, that's not all Israel, um, but it is. Israel's a nation had rejected their Messiah. They were not believing in Jesus, and, uh, which is by and large true today. Jewish people today, by and large, reject Jesus. Now, there is this remnant of people who are Messianic Jews. They call themselves sometimes. Um, oftentimes, Jews come into the church and just you know, form into there. There are believing Jews. They're called completed Jews oftentimes. But there are many that are in unbelief. And the, the Jews of Paul's day is like the Jewish people of today. They're unbelieving. And, and this is amazing because of the amazing privileges they had. Look at verses 4 and 5. They are Israelites... According to them belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of a law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. They had all these privileges. They had adoption. They had um, the glory. They had the covenants. They had the law. They had the worship. All these blessings from God and yet they were unbelieving and the question naturally Comes If they hadn't embraced the Messiah, they weren't trusting in the Lord, then, then um, what about God's promises to Israel? If God promised Israel to Israel to keep them and protect them and that they would be God's people, has, has the Old Testament failed? Has God's promises failed? Because that's where people were objecting to. Like, like, what about Israel's faith? Is that because God's word has failed? And Paul says, no, God's word has not failed. In fact, chapters 9 through 11 are all about teaching that God's word has not failed to Israel. Is the main topic, and the main answer to that question is you're going to basically say the sovereignty of God is the answer of why Israel is unbelieving. Unless you think that Romans nine through eleven is just some obscure theological issue for us to look at here today. Let, let me just say it has great bearing upon our lives, because if the promises made to Israel didn't hold true, then what reason do you have to stand this morning upon the promises to you as a believer in Jesus? Well, you, you, get, you get what I'm saying? God made these promises to Israel. Right. But but Israel is unbelieving and God's made some great promises to us, even here in Romans eight. Look at chapter eight, verse thirty eight, thirty nine. I am sure, Paul says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There's a great promise that that God will never right? Nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. And But you have to say, well, what about Israel? Were they separated? Because they had similar promises. Let me hear just a few. Consider Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. God said to Israel, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people from his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Israel was God's treasured possession that he was going to keep and protect. And yet they're unbelieving. Say, what about that? Or Isaiah 43. But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob. Who formed you, Israel? Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. But Israel was consumed. And Israel was forsaken in some regard. They're not, they're not believing. What, what about that promise? If you hold on to Romans 8, 38 and 39... Which we should. Nothing's going to separate us from the love of God and Christ. What about these promises Israel? They didn't didn't work. Or Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore I have continued in my faithfulness to you. Really? Has God really continued in faithfulness to Israel, though they have forsaken Him? And if Israel's in unbelief, what about us? Is the love of Christ towards us really that certain? That's what's, on, that's what's at stake. It's the dependability of God's word, and is our security in Christ is at stake. That's the, the theological crisis that Paul, that Paul brings up here. Our, our eternal security is at stake, And Paul emphatically states, verse six, "It is not as though the Word of God has failed." Here's my first point. Here's the reason. Paul tells us the reason why it is that God's word has not failed and why it is that we can trust in the security of Christ. Look at the second half of verse 6. And this is the key. For all who are descended from Israel, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, you might say it this way every physical child of Israel is not a genuine child of Israel. Just because you were born a Jew doesn't mean that you were a spiritual Jew. Uh, Turn back in Romans chapter 2. Right at the end of of the chapter. 28 and 29. This is exactly the issue that Paul brought up. 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from men, but from God. See, you're not just a Jew because you're one outwardly. But the Jew is the one who is... Inwardly a Jew. Circumcision doesn't make you a Jew. What what happens is the the change of the heart and the mind. That's what Jesus told the Nicodemus. Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. That which is born of flesh out of Israel is a fleshly Israelite, is a fleshly Jew. But it's only those who are spiritual, who are genuine Jews. So Paul's getting at here in Romans 2 and Romans 9. Not all physical Israel is genuine Israel. Look at Paul says the same thing in verse 7. Look what he says. He said, and saying the same thing is going to repeat it. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. You remember Abraham had two children, Ishmael and Isaac. And he said the offspring will be named through Isaac and not through Ishmael see it 's not the physical children of Abraham, because he had two of them because only the one is recipient of the promise and that 's exactly what Paul said in Romans chapter four, verse thirteen. So this is nothing new to what paul 's been saying Romans four thirteen The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith right it didn 't come through some legal standing, some genealogy, some birth, some father. But it came through the righteousness of faith, and the Jews of Jesus' day didn't understand that. John eight, right? We have Abraham as our father, right? He's our father. We're right with God because we're children of Abraham. He said, "No, you're of your father, the devil," because he's talking spiritually. They're not walking in the faith of Abraham, so they are not not there. And Paul says again in verse eight. This is three times. This is the third time, right? Unless we're we're dense in case we don't understand what he's saying. Not all Israel is Israel. Verse six. Um, not all our children, verse 7, and here it is, number 8, verse 8. This means it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Just consider it, right? These three verses Romans 9 6, Romans 9 7, Romans 9 8, he says the same thing again and again and again. It's not that God's word has failed. It's that we've not understood, it's the Jews haven't understood who national Israel is and who spiritual Israel is. See, the promises of God were not made necessarily to the entire nation. They're made to the spiritual descendants of Abraham. And that's what he's saying. And getting back here, we can just say that not all Israel is Israel. That's the key to understanding why the word of God has not failed. You might use it this way. You might use the word remnant. Because Paul uses the word remnant a little bit later on. We see the promises of security have held because they've held to the remnant. He's held to those genuine ones who have believed. It's the promise that God made to Isaiah. He said in Isaiah chapter 6, You go out and preach, Isaiah, and many will not believe it and will be taken away. But there'll still be this portion. And Paul describes this portion like a tree that's cut down. And this portion is like the the stump, Isaiah 6.13. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Though many Israelites reject the Lord, there's still a portion, there's a remnant that has not rejected the Lord. That's the promise that God made to Elijah. Yet I, have, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. See, Elijah thought that he was all alone, thought that everyone forsook the Lord, and God said, no, i got my remnant. i got my 7,000 who are true. Paul's going to use this same story in, in Romans chapter 11. He, he's going to talk about the remnant. Right? God hasn't rejected His people. He has preserved a remnant. Look at verse 5 of, of chapter 11. So too, at this present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. See, not all Israel is Israel. It's the remnant that God has, has chosen. And, and that's why God's word to His children has not failed, because there's always a remnant. There's always His true spiritual children those who believe. And really the application comes right to us. Right to us at Rock Valley Bible Church. See there are many in the church. Who are not genuine children of God. How else do you explain? Those who are born in the church. Raised in the church. Taught by the church. Have failed to believe and fallen away. You explain it by saying they're not children of God. They never, never have been. Because what's true of Israel that not every native-born one is in the true community a child of promise. It's the same thing as true of the church. Everyone born into the church is not necessarily a, a genuine child. Or you might say it this way, paraphrasing verse 8, Bring it into the church. It's not the children of the church who are the children of God, but the children who are of the promise who are counted as offspring. And I just tell you, church family, if you come to understand this, you'll see the church correctly. And for me, this was life-changing, literally life-changing when I came to understand this. It was my last year of college that I came to understand this. finally went to a church that taught this. I grew up in, a, I would say, a weak church, a church that viewed the Bible as inspiring and not inspired, a church that kind of, we were a big, happy family, and if you professed to believe in Jesus, you were in you were there. And so I went off to college and saw my, my first year, all these church kids, people growing up in church. I went to a secular school, okay? People growing up in church, as soon as they got their freedom, boom, they were gone. They weren't going in the doors of a church anymore. They were more interested in their parties and uh, their sex and their joy and their drugs. Far more interested in that. And I thought for three years of my college experience, oh, they're Christians. They're okay. Right? Because they rose up in church, probably made some kind of profession of faith that they're okay. But it's when I understood they're not okay. These are not children of the promise. They have forsaken the Lord. And the problem is God hasn't done a work in their heart. That's why they have walked away. And it changed much about my life and much about my ministry to understand that Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? In other words, there are people in church professing Jesus. Hey, look here. Who are not genuine children. At one point or another, they will demonstrate it by falling away. And I just say, sadly, how many there are who begin well but drift from Christ in His church? Who could argue, right? How many people have I met, have I heard of? Says, oh, I'm not, I don't go to church, but I'm a, I'm a Christian. I, I believe. People say, I, I believe. Like, Well, if you believe, then you would believe the importance of being involved in a, a faith community of some type, being encouraged, being under the word of God, being around a, a body. And they don't understand that. They don't have any desire for that. But they know enough that they argue, Romans 8, listen, I'm, nothing's going to separate me from the love of God that's Christ. It's in Christ where sometimes that is flat out failed. where well, They don't have any passion, any zeal for God, any understanding, no desire for his word. And that's how Paul explains the faithlessness of Israel. Those who didn't believe were not children of promise. See, the promises of Christ as security are true, but they're true of the the remnant, those who are genuinely in Christ. Romans eight one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not no condemnation for all who profess Christ Jesus. It's all who are in no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And sadly, there are many who make a profession of faith who aren't genuine. Jesus talked about the parable of the seed in the soils where, where the seed is dropped along different places on the hard path. But there's some, the thorny path and the, the rocky path where life grows up. And right, and there's something there. And there's encouragement. They serve with joy. But after a while, they demonstrate they're not good soil and they fall away. But how many people come and immediately receive the word and then at the moment of receiving the word, praying some prayer, some preacher or parent or Sunday school teacher or camp counselor informs them of the wonderful promises that's true for them in Christ Jesus. Oh, you'll never be condemned. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. It's so good for you to enter the kingdom of heaven. Welcome. And these promises given to those whose profession of faith was mere words from the start. But the but the, the pastor, the preacher, the parent pronounces this blessing, this promise, without genuine faith. They're not good soil, but being a, a theological novice, they hear these promises that come upon them as security, and they think about these great promises of security, and so even though they fall away, have not been interested in Jesus for years, they still have in the back of their mind, Oh, I'm not condemned. No condemnation for me, because Romans 8, 1 says that. Nothing can separate from the love of Christ. No, they are far from the love of Christ. They think themselves secure. And these were the very people that Jesus was dealing with, with the Pharisees and, and Sadducees. They don't know that Jesus said, he who endures to the end will be saved. There's this endurance that demonstrates whether you are a child of God or not. It's really, I call it a tragedy. Because people, many people, have no interest in Jesus, not following him in any way, yet they feel they're on their way to heaven because of this promise of eternal security. But this promise is never for them because they were never born again. They were never part of the true church. And you might say, well, Romans 8 failed them. Well, not really. They were never in Christ. And that's how Paul explains how the word of God was not failed, right? Not being in Christ Jesus means you're just like the Israelites. You may go to church, know the Bible, all external, look like a Christian, but you're not. See, it's not the children of the church who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. See, it's through faith that we become children of God. If you have doubt about that, read Romans chapter 4. And what took place in Israel is parallel to what happens in the church today. So many people have an external conformity. They've learned how to speak Christianese, they learn how to act and walk, but their hearts are far from God. Well, that's the reason why the Word of God has not failed is because not all Israel is Israel. There's a difference between physical Israel and spiritual Israel. And and now Paul gives proof. And what I love about the proof is that he goes back to the Old Testament... I mean, Paul doesn't claim rank. I'm an apostle, and this is just what I say. This is true. He goes back in the Bible, particularly he goes back to the start, the the days of the patriarchs, the very foundation of the promises of God, the very foundation of the nation of Israel. And he says that right there from the foundation, the first two generations, there was a difference between ethnic Israel and spiritual Israel, the children of flesh and children of the promise From the very beginning. And so Paul puts forth two biblical examples. First of all we look at Ishmael and Isaac. Or Isaac and Ishmael. Whatever order you want to put them in. Verse 7. Look there verse 7. He says not all are children of Abraham. Because they are his offspring. But through Isaac your offspring shall be named. So this is an Old Testament quote from Genesis 21 verse 12. It comes in the context of family conflict. See because you had Abraham. And God had promised Abraham that he would be a father of a great nation. Listen to the promise again. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And uh, And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And the Lord told them later that, that your descendants will be as numerable as the sand which is on the seashore and as, as numerable as the stars in the heavens. Now, the problem was that Abraham and his wife Sarah were getting older. Abraham's 85 years old, Sarah's 75 years old, no children. How's a big nation going to come? And so they devised a plan. Abraham would sleep with Hagar, Sarah's servant, and gain a child that way. And they did gain a child. Hagar and Abraham had this child, Ishmael, and they gained a child and they gained some problems. Problems with polygamy, right? Conflict, jealousy, and that's exactly what arose because as soon as Hagar conceived, she looked with contempt upon Sarah like, oh, I got this child now. I got this man I got your husband, even though she was a slave. And so Sarah dealt harshly with her, caused her to flee, and she fled into the wilderness just to, just to find refuge. And the angel of the Lord tracked her down and told her, Hagar, return to your mistress and submit to her. And she did. And for years she did. And I'm sure there was lots of conflict among Hagar and, and Sarah. And I'm sure there's this undercurrent of just jealousy and, and uh, conflict between them. And then some 15 years later, when Sarah was 90, she had a child named Isaac. And you can see the tension, the conflict, when Genesis 21 speaks about how Sarah saw Ishmael laughing at something. Hagar's Hagar's son, Ishmael, just laughing at something, like having a good time. And we don't know what, what he was laughing about, but... It displeased her, and so she went to Abraham, who had the authority in the family, and said, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. She was saying, Ishmael's not going to be my heir, Isaac is my heir, because Isaac is my son. And at this point Abraham was displeased. He had two sons and two wives in conflict. I mean Hagar wasn't technically a wife, but essentially two children, too, whatever, and didn't know what to do. And so listen to what God said to Abraham. This is God's word. Do not be displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah tells you to do, do as she tells you, for through Isaac your offspring will be named. Right. In other words, yes, Abraham, you have another son. You have Ishmael. But the blessing of the promise I made to you back in Genesis 12 does not go through Ishmael. It will go through Isaac. So let Ishmael go. He is not the child of the promise. And so Abraham sent Hagar and Ishmael away. Send them away. Like, don't come back. You're gone. God was gracious and protected them in in the wilderness. But that's exactly what Paul quotes in chapter 9, verse 7. Through Isaac, your offspring will be named. Yes, Israel, the descendant of Abraham, but he was not the child of the promise. That was Isaac. Isaac was the child of the promise. So even right here, from the beginning, when God makes this big promise to Abraham, it's not the physical line that gets the promise. It is the spiritual line. It comes through Isaac. And that's Paul's point. I mean, that's the whole point of verse 9. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And the son is a miracle baby born to Sarah when she's 90 years old. This miracle baby born to the barren old woman when, when her time of having children was was long gone. And yet, that's how God does things. He miraculously does things. Supernaturally does things. Not, not giving the promise to the elder, but giving the promise to the younger. And that's the one. It's Isaac. It's not our ways, but it is God's ways. And the fact that Ishmael wasn't a child of the promise is proof of what Paul said in verse 6. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. The word of God did not fail because it did not fail in Isaac. But Isaac and Ishmael isn't the only example that Paul used to prove his case. He brings up Jacob and Esau. Another proof. This is the next generation down. Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob. And this time we see in verse 10, he says, Not only so. In other words, right? Not just Isaac and Ishmael. He's also going to talk about Jacob and Esau. And he continues in verse 10. He says, Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, Our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had did nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of words, but because of him who calls, she said, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now again, just to remind you, what's Paul trying to prove? He's trying to prove that the word of God has not failed. How? By demonstrating that the children, not all the children of the flesh, are children of the promise. And so he's going to show, right, children of the flesh, they're not all children of the promise. Right? And if you know the story, you're going to see Esau is not a, a child of the promise. So here's their family tree. We have uh, Jacob and Esau, born children of the flesh. In fact, they are twins, both born of Isaac and uh, Rebekah. Unless you think that, the, well, well, the issue with Abraham is that they were two different mothers. See, the, the promise was through Sarah. See, and that's why it's easy to discard here, but... But here we see Isaac and Rebekah, same father, same mother. In fact, the same act of conception. This is not an accidental word in verse 10. Not so, only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man. It wasn't born children, it was conceived. This was the same man, same act, same time, same womb. But you know what that makes Esau and Jacob, right? They are womb mates. That's what they are, right? Yeah, you like that, huh? <laughs> I've been waiting a long time for that joke to come, right? I've been going through Romans for a long time, and here comes the punch, right? They're, they're womb mates. And then what, what Paul does, he says, even these, even these children, same father, same mother, same womb, same conception... Even there, there's a distinction between who are the children of God and who are the children of the promise and who are not the children of the promise. And he, again, he goes back to the Old Testament. Look at verse 12. He quotes: The older will serve the younger. Well, this comes in context when, when Rachel had twins in her stomach, in her womb. And he felt them. She felt them struggling together, even in, in the womb, and she inquired of the Lord. And this is what the Lord said to her: Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Even before they're born, says the older Esau will serve the younger Jacob. So Esau's the servant and Jacob is the stronger one before they're born. That's exactly how it was going to happen. It exactly came to pass. And then, then he said, Two nations are in your womb. Esau was the firstborn. He became the father of Edom. The Edomites all came from Esau. And Jacob was the father of Israel. In fact, his name was even changed to Israel to demonstrate it's from Jacob where the the promise comes. Israel was not the chosen. Israel was the chosen. Edom was not the chosen. Israel was the beneficiaries of the promises of God. Edom was not. Israel was stronger than Edom, and Edom served Israel all of her days. And here it is, right? It's not the children of the flesh who are children of the promise. In verse 13, we we see the Lord's disposition towards these nations. He says, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. It's a quote, again, from the Old Testament. This is true in the Old Testament, which, which by the way, just should lead you to say, wow, there are treasures in the Old Testament I never saw before, never thought about. Paul just thought long and hard about these things and went back and pulled these truths from the Old Testament. He said, Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hated. It comes from Malachi chapter 1, where God is in the context of talking about how he loved Israel and, and how he poured out his love towards them. And he said, I've loved you. I said, Esau, I hated them, but I loved you. And listen to what he says of Edom, Malachi chapter 1, verse 4. He says, Edom, they may build, but I will tear down. And they'll be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. How would you like to have that as your nation? The, the motto for your nation. The people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Obviously, the people of Edom were not the, the people of promise. They're not the children of promise. It was Israel. God chose Jacob and not Esau. And that's why the word of God is not failed. because God's promises weren't given to Esau. God's promises are given to Jacob by design, by God's choice, by God's sovereignty, the way that God works. And this is why God's word didn't fail, even though they're unbelieving, right? Esau, if they're unbelieving, the wicked nation, did God's word fail? No, because it, the promises weren't to Esau. The promises came to the true Israel And now look at the sovereignty of God in verse 11. This is kind of the, the core and heart of, uh, of what Paul is saying. Romans chapter 9, verse 11. Though they, that is, Jacob and Esau, though they were not yet born, had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. This is, if you will, some big parentheses in uh, verse 11. Uh, you can read right straight from verse 10 to 12. And not only so, but when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, she was told the older will serve the younger. It makes perfect sense. This is a parenthesis. Paul is laboring long and hard so as to make clear his point of why God's word has not failed. He says, because God doesn't choose based upon our flesh. Jacob and Esau were twins. God doesn't choose based upon our works. Jacob and Esau had done nothing good or bad yet. God doesn't choose based upon his foreknowledge. See, he doesn't choose to seek because it says even here in verse 11, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. In other words, it's not because they're good or bad. It's because God wanted to make sure that it was his choice where things would continue with his promise. He chooses his people in such a way that it all depends upon him. That's how verse 11 ends. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. That's why Jacob was a spiritual son and Esau was not. That's how God saves. And let me just tell you, this is a precious doctrine. If you come to embrace it, you'll understand that how God saves is how God secures. Because the very fact that God begins his work means that God will end his work. But if it's we who began our work, we can easily end our work. But how, how can you make a promise of security? How can you make a promise of no condemnation for those who are in Christ? How can you make a promise of no separation from those who are in Christ Jesus unless it is God who initiates and brings to pass? Isn't that the whole promise of the chain of salvation? Romans 8, 30 that we looked at one right month ago. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There it is, the chain. What God started, he finishes. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. That's why it's those who endure until the end to be saved. It's not because we endure and we're strong. It's because God is the one who keeps until the end. There's a doctrine called the perseverance of the saints, which is actually true. But in better ways, in some regards, is the preservation of the saints, God's going to keep the saints true forever. And that's why God's word has not failed, because his election is certain and he will extend his grace to his people. Okay, one more comment before we finish. Like I said at the beginning, maybe you're here this morning and uh, are thinking, that doesn't seem fair. Doesn't seem fair. How is it like verse 11? How, how can. Right? Before they'd done anything good or bad, right? that God's promise of election, purpose of election might continue. It's a, that doesn't seem fair. If that's your questioning this morning, I say that's wonderful. Because that's exactly the objection that Paul is going to bring up in verse 14. What shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? In other words, if it looks like there's injustice on God's part, like, like, because it's all dependent upon God. Like, how how's he going to how's he going to condemn? That's not fair. You're exactly where Paul wants you to be because that's the objection he's going to answer. And you come back next time, and you see where his objection will be answered. So my challenge to you is this: All right, my message this morning has been entitled "The Word of God Has Not Failed." I'm just going to ask you: Do you believe the Word of God has not failed? Uh, most people say, "Yeah, absolutely." God's Word has not failed. Well. Has it failed in verses 6 through 13? I just know there are many people who say, oh, 6 through 13, that's just awful. I, I hate that. God, that's, I don't like that of God's Word. They take their scissors and cut it out of the Bible because they don't like it. But if you can say God's Word has not failed, that means all of God's Word has not failed, and we need to embrace it. And my challenge to you is, so are you going to accept God's Word? I, I don't think there's anything unclear about what's been said. Not all Israel is Israel. And he shows just because you're a child of flesh doesn't mean that you're a child of the promise. In fact, it's all God's choice is what verse 11 says. Unless you start thinking about, well, well, then why do we pray? We pray because God's the one that stirs the heart. Well, why do we evangelize? Well, Paul's going to evangelize. He looked at chapter 9. Verse two, he says, I, I have sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. They're cursed. He says in chapter one, my heart's desire. I have a zeal to God, right? That they may be saved. He's got evangelists. He's going to quote it. Romans chapter 10. All who call upon the name of the Lord should be saved. Those, that's exactly true. All who call upon the Lord will be saved, right? But here's a, here's a greater thing going on. Is it God's sovereignty behind those who would ever call upon the Lord? But my question to you is just, are you going to believe it? Are you just going to embrace God's word? Because the whole reason why he wrote these things is to show that God's word hasn't failed. Are you going to embrace God's word? Or are you like the doubters in Paul's day who accused him of teaching against God's word? If you don't accept it, that's really where you are. And sadly, there are many in this world who just don't like these verses. I say, stay with it. Because these verses are the glorious thing that realizes that my salvation is grace. And what grace means is God's favor, God's kindness. And God began the work. He's going to finish the work and we can be secure, and it is the doctrine that leads us to great eternal happiness, that forever we're going to praise the grace of God for what He's done in our lives. So let me pray for all of us. Father, I pray, God, for all of us right here, right now, that we would embrace these truths gladly to realize that the Word of God has not failed. God, but it is true. Jesus said, not one dot or iota will pass away from the law. Not one dot on an eye, not one cross on a T. Not one comma, God, not one word, not one letter will fail God's word. It will all come to pass. So I thank you that we can trust your word in these things. And I pray, God, this morning perhaps for those who are struggling with these things. As as I know some are, some do, some will. God, you help them simply to submit to your word and wrestle with these things. I pray, God, that you would give us a, a wrestling of faith. God, for those who don't quite embrace these things, uh, I I pray that they would plead with You. says, I I don't quite see, Lord. Open my eyes. And that they would come humbly. Because, as Daniel 2 says, we read this morning, You're the one that gives wisdom. You're the one that gives understanding. And I believe that, God. I I trust that. I know that to a natural man, the the things of the Spirit of God are meaningless. But to the one who's been born again, to us is the power of God. Uh, To to the unbelieving, it's the cross is foolishness. But to the believing, it is your power. And in that, we boast. We rejoice in Christ Jesus and crucified solely by grace, God, for our sins. And in that, oh God, we, we embrace that. And I just would pray for the heart that's struggling with these things. May they realize that's what God's Word teaches and the Word of God has not failed. Oh God, show your grace in these things. Help us to be conformed to the image of your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.